The ability for places and communities to thrive or not is based on connectivity, access to jobs and services, and social inclusion. And the quality of infrastructure is vitally linked to delivering these ingredients. IQ Future is at the forefront of critical conversations, future visions, and infrastructure insights. Hosted by me, Priscilla Radici, CEO of the Infrastructure Association of Queensland and produced by BBS Communications Group. Bruce Harper is the General Manager Queensland for Avid Property Group. He has a 40-year career in property development, holding senior executive and CEO roles in both the public and private sectors. Bruce has a particular focus on large-scale greenfield projects and has been involved in some of Australia's iconic projects, such as Golden Grove, Mawson Lakes, Harmony and a range of other projects across New South Wales, Queensland and South Australia. He's been an instigator of many of the innovations in urban development, including small lot housing and numerous environmental innovation and urban design initiatives. Bruce is the immediate past president of the Queensland Division of the Property Council of Australia. Welcome, Bruce. Hi, Priscilla. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Thank you for making the time to be with IQ Future this morning. Bruce, perhaps we could start with you telling me about the ingredients that make a good place for communities. I think it's really creating a sense of place and connecting people. I think if you look back over really my career in the property industry and see how we've evolved our communities over that period of time. 40 years ago, we simply just put a liquor tar down and, uh, and cut up blocks, may have serviced them, but there was certainly no social infrastructure. There weren't even footpaths or parks. They came along many years later when council provided those. Uh, we then moved probably in the 1980s and 1990s towards master plan communities where parks were developed, footpaths were developed, and community infrastructure was provided at the same time. That model has really been overtaken more recently by the need to create sense of community as well and a sense of place. So a lot of the master plan communities that are involved, we're involved in now at Avid are to provide things like yoga classes and fitness classes and bringing first-time residents together in things like a long table dinner where you get to know your neighbours and get to meet those, those sparks of creating community. So sense of place and connecting people are very, very important ingredients in creating community these days. Thank you, Bruce. That's a really a huge journey that development has been on from that original space all the way through to the property developer taking a, a genuine interest in how you make those connections early in the piece. When we think about the CBD around the world, especially post-COVID, there's a real look at CBDs. We've got a five kilometre kind of city circle in Brisbane and then a very narrowly defined CBD. When we think about densification, workplace practices, especially for knowledge workers, which is changing quite dramatically, and then the suburbs remaining very aspirational and popular, do you think we need to reconsider how we define, plan and manage the CBD and the connectivity to our suburbs? Well, as communities have changed, our CBD's role's changed as well. I mean, clearly, it still remains the primary precinct for, for government, for our social and cultural infrastructure, for things like entertainment, and for some of our very important industries like government, law, property, finance, and a range of other uses that are important to be in the CBD and to have them centrally located. 
What has changed is retail. I mean, where our CBDs used to be the, the primary retail focus, they've really devolved now a lot of those functions into our regional shopping centres. And more recently, online shopping has changed that as well. So I think the role of the CBD will always be important, will always provide that important hub, that primary location for a number of the hub of those activities, but will emerge and will change over a period of time as well. What is probably not well understood is that, that in Brisbane terms, only 15% of our workers work in the CBD and the immediate surrounds. And that's if you take into account places like the Valley and South Bank. So it's, it's only a small percentage of people that actually work in the CBD. The vast majority, 85% of, of workers in Brisbane, work in the outer suburbs. That's a really interesting statistic when we think about the economic growth of CBDs and what they enable versus where people are actually living, working and playing. If we think about South East Queensland then and how we manage that growth and density to ensure livability and character is maintained, how do you think we'll manage that subtropical South East Queensland, that distinctive feel that we get from you know the wooden tin Queenslanders as we move into this big growth and a metropolis of a really quite distinctive regions becoming one potentially big city. Yes, there's a range of things to unpack there. I mean, I think you can't make people live in high density and live in apartments simply because that's a planner's or a bureaucrat's aspiration. These are things that are generational changes. It, they don't happen quickly overnight. You can't make somebody say, that's the only, only housing choice you have. I know our planners at a state and local government level have those sorts of aspirations, but they're not necessary, the aspirations of the community. The fact that we, we say, you know, there's a mismatch of housing, maybe I'll use an example, an elderly widow living in a three bedroom home in the middle suburbs, that's not necessarily a mismatch in housing. It, might be seen as a mismatch by some, but a person might, in that circumstances, may want to age in place, being close to family, have rooms for recreation, have rooms for when grandchildren visit. So there's, a, there's some real changes that are, that are trying to be created, but aren't necessary the aspirations of the community. It's a difficult situation when you think about density globally and how you manage where people live, the land supply the infrastructure and then where people actually want to be, matching those aspirations to, as you say, what might look good in theory from a planning perspective versus what people want and how do we make those choices over time? Yeah, it's a tricky one. The aspirations of particularly first home buyers of buying new homes has always been on the in the suburbs and that hasn't changed really in all the census periods that I've, you know, I've looked at in the last 30 years. It's about the same percentage, over 60% of first home buyers buying a new home choose to live in suburban locations. I'll make a point too about the, the tin and aspirations of the, the subtropical design I think you mentioned for, for Queensland. Very important, you know, they are, those are old, our old Queenslanders are, are beautiful, nostalgic and probably a, an ideal solution for their time but they're probably exactly the worst type of building that you can build today for thermal efficiency. I mean, ask anyone that lives in a Queensland, they'll tell you whatever the temperature is on the outside, it's the temperature on the inside of those homes. So we need to be quite clever of how we, how we design our communities, how we design our homes for the future. Yeah, how we embrace change moving forward, because nostalgia can actually stop progress in some ways, but it's balancing that tradition, but still moving forward into the future. It's a really interesting pickup. As more people choose to move out of major metropolitan centres, we're seeing, we saw this trend pre-COVID and it's certainly accelerated. 
What does this growing urban sprawl mean for regional centres like the Sunshine Coast when it comes to delivering amenity, infrastructure delivery, local jobs and services? Well, Sunshine Coast is a very good example. Uh, we have one of the largest projects up there, Abbott Property Group is developing a project called Harmony. It might surprise a number of your listeners to know, but the very reason that people are moving to, to those sorts of suburbs is that there are jobs there. There's amenity there and there's infrastructure there. Um, in a project that we develop, we are, we are ensuring that there are the schools are in place as, as people move in, that the shopping centres are, are there as commercially as soon as possible, uh, and, and jobs are, are being provided in these locations. So if we take the Sunshine Coast, again, it's a statistic that I've had to look at a couple of times because it didn't seem right to me, uh, but it's borne out that 85% of people on the Sunshine Coast who work, work within the Sunshine Coast. There's only a small leakage of, if you call it that, of workers that travel outside of the Sunshine Coast to work. And that mainly places like Moreton Bay rather than making that whole journey to Brisbane. So it's wrong to think of, of places like the Sunshine Coast as dormitory suburbs. They are they're really whole communities in themselves. And jobs are being created there. There's uh, a strong demand for industrial land um, that uh, we've seen in the Stocklands development at Aura. There are major job generators that have occurred over the last few years, like the hospital and the hospital precincts on the Sunshine Coast. They've brought people not only from, from around Australia, but from around the world. So they've created major job opportunities. So I think it's it's wrong to think that our, our suburbs don't provide amenity and they, they don't provide jobs. I think the truth is that uh, while, they, while some of the things may lag a little bit, they have become vibrant and attractive places that provide what most people want. I think this gets back to your comment earlier around this master plan approach. I think that also links into how we coordinate that. So you just talked about industrial land, where people are commuting to, which isn't necessarily the nine to five commute to the CBD. Indeed, 70% of the workforce physically has to be in their job they're not able to do the work from home but how what do you see as the role of government to really coordinate effectively the land use and transport planning and how we stay ahead of that growth because that amenity needs to be maintained in places like the Sunshine Coast it is good now the population is growing extensively how do you keep that and coordinate that into the future well Obviously, it's a it's the role of of both state and local government to ensure there's an adequate supply of land, but more importantly, that supply of land needs to be matched with the infrastructure that that supports the development of those areas. And that's probably something we've not done as well in in Queensland in the past. But certainly, government's aspirations are to to ensure that we have the appropriate amount of infrastructure matched with an appropriate amount of land supply. And I think we need to think more about, not about ideological solutions of how people want to want to live, but how government can actually deliver best the aspirations of those people who, who choose to live in, in, uh, in the growth areas of our, our city. I guess it's, uh, it's, a, it's probably an aspiration of mine that wouldn't it be great if our infrastructure engineers, our planners, our traffic engineers were required to work in the private sector for say five years before they could work in government. Maybe we'd end up with quite different cities and, and delivered in quite different ways. I think how we partner with the public and private sector and build respectful and trusting relationships and understanding of the different business models is really quite critical to that coordination. You have to be able to have an understanding of the different drivers and how we come together. And that behavioural piece, I think, is quite quite important. But it's also about 
listening to the community, isn't it? As you said, there's a good theory for what we should do around productivity or, or density versus how people actually want to live and being able to listen to that and create the vision that matches how people want to live. Kind of following on from that point, Infrastructure Australia did their major audit last year looking at what infrastructures needed where. Southeast Queensland actually faces the biggest economic cost of congestion in Australia with a $7 billion bill by 2041 in the current kind of rate of delivery for infrastructure. At the same time, our population is growing above any of the predictions pre or post COVID. A lot of people are coming to Queensland and recognising all of the livability ingredients that it has. So as we start to move goods and people around the city and around the region and how the region's interconnected, what do you see as the actions that we need to take now to secure that future mobility and livability? I probably draw a distinction, Priscilla, between mass transit that we need to have between our major centres and, and transport and mobility within within our communities. I think there's no doubt that, that we have to make a greater investment in that mass transit, moving people from places like the Sunshine Coast and the Gold Coast back and forward from Brisbane. Those, the connection of that quite long distance, probably 200 kilometres, is very important. I think there's there's probably a different argument for, for transportation solutions within growth areas. So the Gold Coast, uh, I can see that something like the tram system there, the light rail system's been a great boon to that area. We've got an area where we've got particularly high density, we've got a lot of Visitors that move there, they move between the airport, the casinos, the beaches and and the the various entertainment centres within the Gold Coast. And therefore, a transit system like a light rail system suits that community well. In other places where there's not the density, it's probably more of a a 19th century technology that may be a bit of an ideological affectation rather than a, a useful service. I mean, I won't probably draw some examples in, in Queensland, but but really can you justify a tram system in, in a planned city like Canberra? I don't think you can. But it's important to look at what solutions suit most cities in terms of their, their growth potential and their growth. It may be more buses. It may be that that uh, our roads with autonomous vehicles in the future will be able to have a, a greater capacity to be able to take that. So, you know, our, our roads now that are, are really quite congested may become, have 30, 40, 50% more capacity as autonomous vehicles become more more ubiquitous in our, in our communities. I really like that conversation around the locally led solutions. There isn't any particular mode that can just be dropped into any place, you know, that is the same for each different city. They're all really quite quite distinct and with different challenges. But the, I think globally around the world, the three million mark seems to be the point where cities start to really stop functioning with their agglomeration economics and the livability if that mass transit with frequency and capacity doesn't come through. But it's that real mix of locally led and different modes. That's that's an important mix. So I'm, I'm pleased to hear you say that. I think that's an important point here in I, southeast Queensland. I think there's a threshold of commuter pain. You know, it's probably about 40, 45 minutes and beyond that distance people look for other solutions. So it's about how do you match that. I hark back in the in the nineties and I was visited Tokyo and uh, the Tokyo was sprawling quite dramatically there and the, the train system was getting faster and faster and what it meant that the suburbs were that commuted distance was still not was ex- exceeding in time so 
part of the way of slowing down the growth of Tokyo was to slow down the trains. It's really interesting, isn't it? And then you have places like Los Angeles, which have always been so heavily car-centric that are now putting in the largest light rail project in the world ever. So you have really different cities making different decisions with different problems at different times. Yes, and you, we look at cities that became the sort of the darling childs of planners for, for the last two or three decades and, and Portland and Seattle, where we put in urban growth boundaries and we had visits from, from planners and planning ministers for, for decades looking at that as the, as the ideal solution. What that led to is probably the most expensive real estate cities to buy in in the world now and, and suffering lots of social problems as well. So courses for courses, different solutions need to be found for different cities. Absolutely. And, and the unintended consequences of some of those planning decisions around social exclusion. Can I close out with a fairly big question? Do you think that we're being bold enough in how we imagine and design for the future? Look, there's no shortage of clever and creative designers, developers, architects and thinkers who have terrific ideas about the future of our cities. We just need to ensure that government regulation and bureaucracy doesn't stifle them. We look in Brisbane, you've some recent developments, you know, Queen's Wharf, Howard Smith Wharfs, the earlier revitalisation of the Woolstores precinct, new suburbs, They've all run the gauntlet of, of our planning systems and they've all encountered great difficulties. But the one thing that they've, they've always been characterised is there's always been a champion, somebody who will champion their development. And I have great confidence in the future that these champions will emerge and will still be able to create the city as a wonderful place to live. Fabulous. And those champions will have a support network around them and, and hopefully we can start to work collectively for that really bold vision. Thank you for your time, Bruce. It's been fabulous to have you on IQ Future and listen to your insights around South East Queensland and how we grow into the future. Thanks, Priscilla. You've been listening to IQ Future. This podcast is brought to you by the Infrastructure Association of Queensland and is produced by BBS Communications Group.